Welcome to the future of XYZ. I'm your host, Lisa Grelnick, principal and founder of LVG & Co., an independent strategy consultancy based in New York City. Through quick and candid conversations with innovative leaders, we aim to foster new thinking and explore big questions about where we are as a world and where we're going. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Future of XYZ. Uh, in light of everything that's happening in America right now uh, and around the world, frankly, in terms of uh, democratic norms and election cycles and voting rights, uh, I'm really excited to introduce Aaron Hamlin, uh, who knows a lot about voting and a lot about elections. Uh, Aaron, thank you for coming to speak with us at Future of XYZ. Thank you so much, Lisa. Um, well, you obviously are both the co-founder as well as the executive director of a nonprofit called the Center for uh, Election Science. I mean, give you a chance to talk about that a bit, but I really want to start with, you know, we're in the midterms in the U.S. right now, right? We're, we're deep in it, um, and they are very important elections given the state status of the, the world order. Um, what is kind of your, as an expert in this field, what is your observation of what's happening in terms of elections in the U.S. and elsewhere right now? And, and how has it kind of been evolving, if, if not necessarily progressing? Well, I think the state of elections right now is not so great. Um, and like thinking about midterms and thinking about like right now, like right now we're in the midst of primary season. And uh, within a primary, you have a bunch of candidates that have overlapping ideas. Uh, sometimes you can get a whole bunch of candidates. And when you have a whole bunch of candidates that are similar in some way, you have vote splitting. And when you have vote splitting, in many cases, you have no idea who the actual best candidate is. Right. Um, and that person, even if they're not all that great, is the person who advances. Uh, and if they advance in a place that is really not competitive, outside of their, their party, then that's who gets elected. And because of incumbent status, they can stay there for a long time uh, based on a bunch of vote splitting. Um, and so that's the state of affairs right now in terms of like this uh, mist that we're in with the, the primary season. It's interesting. And I mean, I think your organization was, you founded it in 2013, uh, but in 2018, looking at some data, you basically decided to focus in one particular area. And I, I think it has to do with what you're talking about. Can you share where you guys focus and why it matters for the future of elections? Yeah. So like uh, before 2018, we really didn't have any uh, funds. And when you don't have funds, you just, uh, you can afford to think a lot. And so we spent the early days thinking about what the best path forward was. And so we were agnostic about the voting method that we were looking at. And so we had to think about like, okay, well, what makes a voting method good? Like asking very fundamental questions. And in that process, we were identifying things like winner selection, uh, a voting method that reliably elects a, a winner who represents the electorate, uh, how accurately the voting method captures support of all the candidates. And then thirdly, uh, practicality uh, concerns. So how easy is it to understand? How easy is it to implement? Um, so that, that kind of thing. And um, based on and that- that's from we, a voting methodology. Correct, correct. Yeah, yeah. And, and, like, and, and, and maybe for further clarity here, when we talk about a voting method, um, like it's not just 
choose one candidate and the candidate with the most votes wins. That's an example of a voting method. But more broadly, a voting method is the information you put on a ballot could be different kinds of information, choosing one, choosing multiple, ranking them. Then you got to do something with that. So like, say you have ranking information, for example, do you simulate sequential runoffs? Do you simulate pairwise comparisons, like this kind of like a round robin type tournament? And it's uh, completely inconsistent in the world for sure, but even in the US from locality, locality, state to state, I would imagine office to office perhaps. Um, Ideally, but like in, in practice, uh, uh, almost everywhere in the U.S. uses the same terrible choose one voting method. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, unfortunately, like doesn't have the, the kind of experimentation that we were like uh, just yet, but okay. we're working on that. Very cool. Yeah, no, it's interesting because I think, you know, I look at, I mean, uh, it, it, from an international lens, you know, I think about some of the differences you have, you have places in certainly in Western Europe, whether it be France or, or Germany, who right now, or even Israel, frankly, who have these, you know, they end up forming coalition governments because they don't have a two-party system as we do. And so when you have multiple interests at heart, you end up, and even England has to kind of rule with multi-parties. Whereas here in the U.S., we have a two-party system, which seems increasingly to look like it doesn't really function particularly well. Um, how, how do we think about elections in the future under a two-party system? What are some of the mechanisms when, you know, voter suppression is at an all-time high, when gerrymandering is being enforced, um, when, you know, our separation of, of the judiciary doesn't feel necessarily like it's so separate from political interests and those donors who pay for it? How, how do we account for uh, a two-party system in, in, in the future of elections. Well, interestingly, uh, a large determinant for whether you have a two-party system is the type of voting method that you use. Mm. Um, uh, Maurice de Verger, a lawyer from France, uh, a long time ago, he since died, I think he died when he was like 92 or 93, um, looked at the idea of the type of voting method that's being used, being predictive of the number of parties being elected, whether you have this two-party system or multiple parties. Uh, we see quite a lot when we look at, for instance, a lot of European countries, you say, oh, they got uh, clearly more than two parties. Yeah. Why is that? Uh, and often that's because they use a proportional uh, voting method. And that's something when you are electing multiple seats at the same time, typically over there, they're talking about an entire uh, legislature uh, being uh, elected at, or legislature or parliament being elected at the same time. Yeah. Uh, in the U.S., we take what are often what we would think of as like at large or something like a, a body that would represent some larger area. And we take that and we divide it up into little squares that are geographically based and make them single winner. And the mere act of doing that uh, takes away the option for proportional representation. Mm. You have to elect everybody at the same time to do that. But uh, so like when, when I'm thinking about a voting method, in my head, I've got two classes in my head. I've got the multi-winner class of voting methods where you have these kind of uh, homogenous block type systems. And then you've got ones that are give more of a spread and more representation to a broader group of people. So proportional methods. Um, and then I, I think about uh, single winner methods, which uh, apply to most places in, in the US. Um, and there you have an entirely different class of voting methods. And 
the objectives of these different voting methods uh, are, are different. So like with, when you have these proportional methods, you're thinking, okay, well, you want uh, people who are elected to both be kind of like high value or, or the voters really like them a lot, but you also want that proportionality component. When you're dealing with single winner methods, you can only do one of those. You can't do proportionality because there's nothing proportionate about one person representing right. a bunch of people. So you have to focus on the individual who's elected, making sure that they bring up the most happiness for the most number of people in the electorate. Which, which is pretty fascinating because, I mean, I, I'm, I'm jumping around a bit, but obviously the past few weeks have been, depending on which side of the aisle you sit uh, and your values and beliefs, which I talk a lot about in my branding and strategy work, one could argue that the last few weeks of uh, Supreme Court uh, in America, SCOTUS decisions have felt really um, very, very tied to this voting method, as you're talking about, because in fact, we have had five of the nine justices who have made all of these things from diminishing women's rights and whatever else they're going to diminish in the future to lack, loosening EPA regulation on, and, and on carbon emissions to, uh, you know, obviously gun control uh, and, and, and rights to conceal, carry concealed weapon and all sorts of other hideous activities that five of these justices who were nominated slash appointed by presidents in that single method voting who never even won the popular vote. I mean, these are decisions that are being taken. Sorry, I'll get off the high horse, but how do we believe in a free and fair election in a, and you only have elections in democratic societies when in fact, you don't feel, and I'll speak for myself, when I don't feel that the people who have the power are representing the interests of the majority of the people, not just that they weren't put in, in, into office or position for lifetime appointments by presidents who did not win the popular vote, but you know, 74% of Americans and 81% on the issue of you know, gun, smart gun control and women's, women's right to choose proportionally actually don't believe what was just put into place by the Supreme Court. So how do we believe in a future of fair and free elections when we're seeing it kind of undermined right now? And, and why is that happening? I think part of that is like, so when you're talking about Supreme Court justices, obviously they're appointed by the, the president and then confirmed. But the one question is like, okay, well, the person who uh, appoints them, the, the president, like, how do they get there? Like, how do they get in their seat? And I think that's kind of like where you have to uh, start your, your your branch from in terms of where that flows. And we look back and we think like, okay, well, you've got these closed, like for presidential elections, you've got closed primaries. So you have to identify with a particular party. Uh, so you start with a subgroup that's already partisan. Um, and uh, you have all this vote splitting that comes along, like, you look back at like Republican primaries and 18 candidates in the election that uh, uh, Trump won. Yeah. Uh, so vote splitting all over the place. And we know what happens when you have vote splitting. You don't necessarily get the best candidate. Even within that subgroup, you can get a more extreme candidate. So you take a subgroup that already has an, uh, a polarity bent to it. And then you throw vote splitting in there where uh, voters can only choose one candidate. And so as a consequence, um, the uh, you can have like the group around the center uh, divide their vote and uh, places where you have more concentrated support uh, around the edges, uh, they don't have their votes, but, and so those extreme candidates can, can move on. Uh, and as a consequence, like 
that's the the nominee for that party and u.s ballot access laws are pretty terrible so even if you wanted to you just say ballot access laws yeah in the u.s are are, are pretty bad Uh, so even if you get and, and even if you manage to get on the ballot you're often shamed for um threatening to split the vote between the two uh major uh parties anyway but in any case like that's that that's how that person gets there they they get from an already extreme uh subgroup uh and then you have votes being on top of that leading to an even more extreme nominee and then both parties do that uh, and so there's no room like overall like th- there's no idea of having continuity where you have someone around the middle. It's always this pendulum effect where it swings wildly. And, and this has been happening increasingly, Aaron. I mean, that's the sense I have that this has not always been the way America has been run. This seems to be growing. And, and it, that is what's super concerning about the future of elections is that there are mechanisms in place that are going to make the voter group, as you said, more and more extreme right? And suppress the voices of those who might think differently. And then in all sorts of hideous tactics that we're not here today to discuss, but, you know, I mean, that look much more like, you know, a a different kind of nation than the world's leading democracy. Um, But more importantly, this extreme pendulum swing that you're talking about, why has that been happening? And, and, And how are we going to kind of scale it back in the future if we can? Yeah, so, I mean, that pendulum effect largely happens because of this vote splitting uh, and these uh, the way that we approach primaries. And so uh, the approach that we uh, advance uh, at the Center for Election Science is to simply say, instead of picking one candidate, you can pick as many as you want. Uh, so that head-on addresses the vote splitting problem in a very simple way. You're not ranking, just pick as many as you want. Most votes wins. It's called approval voting. Uh, we've implemented it in uh, two cities with groups that we worked with so far, Fargo, North Dakota, 120,000 people, St. Louis, Missouri, 300,000 people. It's on the ballot this November in Seattle, where you've got three quarters of a million people. It's polling at 70%. It's passed at over 60% everywhere it's been on the ballot for. And that uh, particular approach also tends to elect a more consensus candidate around the middle. So whether you're talking about the general election or in a primary, it, it avoids uh, preferring that extremist candidate. And on top of that, it gives everybody their due. So when new people come in with new ideas, they get that accurate reflection of support so they can't be dismissed in the same way. Yeah, that's, that's I mean, which is always nice <laughs> not, not to be dismissed because I think it's very easy, again, coming back to the future of elections in America, the money in the system is only growing. Again, Supreme Court decisions to, you know, back in the day, uh, make corporations act like individuals, and it's just become even a, an even greater uh, barrier for the average candidate to to to, to forego funding um, based on latest decisions. So, how does money play into this system, and how do we anticipate, since it's unlikely campaign finance is going to change, uh, how do we anticipate elections in the future? kind of still being held together uh, as a democracy versus a pay to play. There is some interplay between the voting method itself and the idea of money in elections. Um, I mean, regardless of the voting method that you use, you have to be able to uh, fund a competent campaign if you're running for for office so people know who you are. But one thing that comes into play with our terrible choose one voting method is that when we're thinking about who to vote for, we're not only thinking about the policies and whether we think that person would do a good job, 
we're also thinking about can that person win and whether that person can win is not necessarily related to whether they will do a good job and support your interest. And so with the voting method like approval voting, it takes that factor of viability out of the equation. And often we uh, substitute viability with things that are easier to measure, like how well known is this person? How much money do they have? And again, not necessarily good predictors about how well they're going to do in office. And so with approval voting, for example, there's a candidate that you like you don't necessarily know that they're going to win, but you love their ideas, you can support them. And then you can also say, if you want to look at viability, you can support someone else that you also think will do a good job as well. But you're also supporting like candidates who are likely to do a good job, uh, even if they don't have a lot of funding behind them. Which is very important, obviously. Um, and so you you guys are rolling out this idea of approval voting um, in in small. I mean, obviously Seattle's not a small city, but it's still not one of our nation's largest. Um, but in these smaller places, is this limited? Do you think at this moment in time to a test and learn in local elections and our local elections in some ways where we really need to focus energy these days versus the state and or federal level, because that's where change can really happen in terms of moving towards a future of elections that is different than the direction we're heading. Well, we're, we're pivoting a bit. The reason we've started with uh, cities is because although the voting method approval voting is really great, it hadn't been used in government elections before. So we had to go from zero to getting it implemented so that there was a, a, a track record for it. But we're getting ready to move into to states where you start to see approval voting be used for uh, US Senate, US House, presidential elections. Um, but we're in the process of pivoting to states at the moment. Interesting. Um, and, and how is it, I mean, do you have data so far that shows like a, a different outcome? Uh, yeah. So when we're looking at, for, for instance, uh, uh, we did an election, uh, a simulation looking in 2016, where we saw how different voting methods would play out. Um, with that election, it was kind of simple. So um, uh, there, Clinton wins in the kind of traditional four-way race that was there. Uh, with When we added a whole bunch more candidates, we saw a, a statistical tie between uh, Clinton and Sanders under approval voting. And there are Sanders we identified using a control measure where we asked people to say honestly how they felt about the candidate that he was the preferred one. Mm -hmm. uh, so there we saw a discrepancy in, in winner compared to other voting methods in terms of what they would have chosen. Mm -hmm. And that's it, also published in the European Journal of Political Economy. Very interesting, actually, because it suggests that I mean, I don't know what the sample size N was, and I, you know, there are all sorts of statistical ways of looking at this and the profile of the the people who were who who, who you looked at um, to get to that, of course. Um, but it is interesting that there is a, a, a distinction. I, I mean, as we kind of come towards time, I, I have two major questions, Aaron, that I want to give you. One, what are you most afraid about right now in terms or concerned about in terms of the future of elections? In, you can speak to the U.S., you can speak to the world. Um, and the second question, by the way, is going to be, what are you most excited about? Just, just to end <laughs> on an optimistic note. So go pessimistic, cynical, and then go optimistic. Uh, one, one challenge that we have in this space is that the voting method is a hidden problem. Uh, we don't, most people, when you ask them what a voting method is, they say, that, oh, yeah, you go and you choose one person, the candidate with the most votes wins. Most people don't recognize that there are all kinds of different ones. And comparing them can be kind of challenging. Uh, and uh, one other kind of 
way that we approach this problem is we say like, okay, well, um, if a voting method's more complicated, maybe it performs better. Not the case. Like we happen to be very lucky with approval voting that it's both very simple and very uh, effective in terms of good winner selection and capturing candidate support in a way that's just easy to understand. Uh, whereas other voting methods, such as some ranking ones, um, can have some issues in terms of like the outcomes that they uh, produce in some cases, uh, but are some much more complicated. And this does not have to be a complicated solution to be a good solution. Yeah, that, that seems totally reasonable. And what are you most excited about? And maybe it can tie into things that people can do, because I know voter turnout in the U.S. has you know, the last couple of elections have been historically high, but generally speaking, we're getting, you know, less than two and three people uh, out to out to the polls. So what are you most excited about and what are some of the things that can how, how people can get involved? What's exciting to me is that this is something that once it catches on, uh, so we've already implemented in multiple states, but once it gets into its multiple cities, but once it gets into its first state, this is not an idea that can go back in the box. You can't put this genie back in the bottle. It is too easy to do. Uh, and what's exciting about this is you get this simple approach that does so much. It's not a silver bullet, but like to be able to have a voting method that actually captures candidate support, that actually lets you support the candidate that you've always wanted to support. Th these are simple, but very amazing things. And these are things that like you as a listener can, uh, for instance, like be involved in. Um, for instance, like if you wanna get involved, you can go to our organization website at electionscience.org. Um, we have a nationwide chapter campaign where you can be part of the next ballot initiative in your, in your state. Uh, we have an active discord where you can see all the updates in terms of like what campaigns are doing, all the movement about approval voting. Uh, this is a, a very uh, simple, uh, approach and, and a very exciting ride. Um, but this is one where uh, once the, uh, the momentum uh, moves forward further, it's going to be really hard to slow down this train. And and that is, which is very hopeful, of course. I mean, I, I have so many more questions, Aaron, to, to dive into on this idea of the future of elections, but also of specifically what you're focused on, um, approval voting methods. Uh, so Thank you for sharing your expertise and your perspective with us on Future of XYZ today. Uh, lots of important work coming down in the next uh, few months and years for you. It's been a pleasure, Lisa. Uh, and for everyone listening, if you don't already subscribe to Future of XYZ, do so on YouTube or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Follow Future of XYZ on Instagram and visit future-of.xyz to learn more about LVG and Co. and to nominate yourself or someone you know as a guest. Thank you. Thank you again, Aaron and everyone. If you're in a state where you have midterms or local elections, get out and vote. That is the future of elections, is all of us being participatory. See you next week. Thanks for listening to The Future of XYZ. If you like what you've been hearing, please follow Lisa Grelnick on LinkedIn. Visit future-of.xyz or subscribe to The Future of XYZ podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts.